Alright then, we're going to Luke 22. And I need to explain a confusion which is all of my own making in the production of the latest uh, speaking schedule. I managed somehow to duplicate last subjects, uh, last week's subject that David King spoke on, uh, into this week. So it was only part way through the week when I started uh, my study in Luke 22 on the subject that David had already spoken about that I discovered uh, that I was duplicating efforts. So that's an explanation, but because we have a sequential program and Ian being the prepared guy that he is who's speaking next week, he already has his all sorted. So we couldn't swap the subjects around. So we're going back into Luke 22. Uh, It's inevitable, I think, that there will be some overlap with what David uh, gave to us last week. If you weren't here, then you can catch up with that on SoundCloud. But I want us, in a sense, not necessarily to to work through the passage and to draw uh, the teaching out of it in the same way that David did last week, but take a theme uh, that Luke 22 brings us to, which is Jesus Christ's victory over Satan's evil activity to derail God, to deceive humanity, and to destroy life. So that's Jesus Christ's victory over Satan's evil activity to derail God, to deceive humanity, and to destroy life. Let's take some readings from Luke 22. Now the festival of unleavened bread, verse 1, called the Passover, was approaching And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. When he consented and watched, he consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over over to them when no crowd was present. Go down to verse 31. This is the Lord speaking. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, You will deny three times that you know me. Down to verse 47. They've moved to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus was talking to his disciples. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And then down to verse 60. The scene moves on it further. Jesus is taken as a, as a captive, uh, as a criminal, and is brought to the high priest's residence. And Peter has followed from a distance, and he has interactions with people who say that he was with Jesus. But verse 60 says, Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. 
before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Last week, David was telling us the two main characters besides the Lord Jesus in this section are Judas and Peter. And we see the effect of Satan's influence on them. And we're just going to come back into it a little bit here. But I want us to see that Jesus Christ is the one who has victory over Satan's schemes. And that gives us confidence too. It's in here for a reason. That little section that you're just looking at now, if you're still there in verse 60 onwards. Luke, when he's speaking about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, most often refers to him as Jesus. Jesus was his earthly name. So the eternal son of God, the Christ, was the promised name that God had given to one who was coming. Uh, So that was a, a title the anointed Messiah, the Christ. Luke chooses in his portrayal of the life of the man, Jesus, to use his name, Jesus. But now and again, I think when Luke is wanting to make a particular point about the true identity of Jesus and his authority over all things, he uses the word Lord in his description of Jesus. And we have it here in verse 61. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. And then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. It's a little thing, but I think it's important because up to this point through this chapter and in the verses in the chapters before it's been Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And Jesus has been demonstrating his knowledge of the things that are coming. And here as a bit of a clincher When Peter denies the Lord for the third time, it says the Lord looked at him. The one who knows it all, who is sovereign over all things. As a man here on this earth, turns and looks at Peter. He is the Lord. Lord means that he is the one who has absolute authority. And Luke here is bringing us to see that. That in the midst of this story... That in some sense, although we know the end of it, if we're reading it for the first time, we think the whole thing is starting to fall apart. Because there's this conspiracy against Jesus, who has declared in the things that he has said and done that he is the sent one from God. But yet it all seems to be falling apart. As there's this conspiracy, as then he's brought to trial. And then Luke carefully says, the Lord turned to look at Peter. Luke is saying to us, well, you you hold up here. Look at who really is in charge. He's the one who is in control. I want to say a little bit of something about Satan. uh, And then to see something of his activity. One, to derail God. Two, to deceive humanity. And three, to destroy life. And the reasons for that. And then to see the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ brings against the work of Satan. In the Old Testament part of the Bible, uh, the, the Hebrew for Satan is always prefixed by the Satan. And Satan means adversary. He is the adversary. There's one who has been in rebellion 
against God before humanity was because he appears in the Garden of Eden to deceive humanity into sin. Humanity is culpable for its sin, but he was there as part of the deception. So he has rebelled as part of the created order, and he is set against the things of God. He is the adversary. When you come to the New Testament, Satan doesn't always have the definite article the in front of it. Sometimes it does in the Greek language, the Satan, the adversary. But quite often, and it's when the Lord even refers to him, Satan is used as we would have a personal name. He takes on a personal form, this adversary set against the things of God and against the joy of humanity. The other name that we're familiar with is the devil. That's there in the Greek New Testament of our Bible. That's more like a title. And it speaks of the one who is the accuser or slanderer of people. That actually takes us back into the Old Testament. We have glimpses now and again of how this one who is the adversary of God's purposes and the adversary against humanity will slander and accuse people before God. We'll say more on that in a moment. We have to be careful with our understanding of who the Satan or Satan is. Our assumption is that he is a fallen angel, but show me chapter and verse for that. We're not certain, but what we can say from the biblical testimony is that he is part of the heavenly host that is created by God. Ezekiel 28, the latter section of Ezekiel 28, would seem to indicate the sinister, nefarious involvement of a being that is behind one of the the living leaders of the nations back in Ezekiel's time. And he's referred to as the king of Tyre. And there's a reference there to him having been the anointed cherub. Now, cherubim were those created beings that guarded the presence of God. They seem to be a higher order of heavenly being than angels who were the messengers to do God's work. So, I'm only just putting this to you, that we automatically, and I think have assumed from the way we've been taught, that Satan was a fallen angel. He was a fallen, rebellious creature made by God as part of the heavenly host, of which there seem to be levels. You get seraphim in Isaiah 6. You have these cherubim that are mentioned, and they feature in the tabernacle and the temple associated with God's dwelling place as protectors of his glory. Not that God needs protecting, but almost as guardians of that. And they were there at the Garden of Eden to prevent Adam and Eve returning so they might eat of the tree of life after their failure. So that just gives us some idea of the personal attributes of this adversary that is set against God at some point who rebelled and scripture would then point us to fallen angels uh, you go to the writings that Peter has in the New Testament first and second Peter there are references there to fallen angels some of whom are held in chains of darkness so you have him almost set up as a ringleader of a rebellion possibly two rebellions because in Genesis 6 It seems as though some of the sons of God, some of the created heavenly beings, decided that they would give up their position and come to earth and procreate with humanity. What a subject. It's 
fascinating, but it's part of the story that God wants us to grapple with. But I want to give us this caution right at the beginning. The adversary who is set against God has been created by him. That therefore means that we are not people who, who pursue this idea that is dualism. Dualism is rife in our culture. The fight or the battle between good and evil, as if they are two equal forces. It's everywhere. It's in the things that people say. It's in the stuff that we watch that has been created by the movie makers and the TV programs. There's a famous program that seems to have been issued recently that has that same thing. Uh, that there's this battle between good and evil and it's as if the earth is the middle of that battleground. That's not what we see in scripture. We see a God who's sovereign over it all. He is good and perfect in everything and right. But there is one who is set against him who has brought to the earth through humanity's failure a destruction to each individual's life because of sin that is there in us. But God is infinitely greater. We must remember that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. As those who trust in God, that the contest, there is no contest. But that does not minimize the reality of the adversary's actions. One, to derail God, or try to, it's an impossibility. Two, to uh, deceive humanity, and he does that every day. And third, to destroy life. And he does that every day. He is active, along with others of the fallen, angelic, heavenly host. He is active, set against the things of God. I want us to think about this, this first of our, our three stopping points of derailing God. He has attempted already, as we've seen in Luke's gospel, and in the other gospel accounts that tell us about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he has attempted to derail God's plan. God's plan that has been in place from before there was a creation. He has this attempt to deflect and derail God's purposes. But we praise God that Jesus is revealed as the one who perfectly accomplishes the will of God even when faced with the adversary. You go back to Luke chapter 4 and there we read about the temptations or the testing that the Lord Jesus experienced in the wilderness when Satan, the devil, the accuser, the adversary came to test him. He did not give in. The accuser and the adversary was coming and saying, look, there's a quicker way to gain all of the adulation of the nations of the earth, and I can give it to you. You don't need to go through with this plan that involves your suffering. I do believe that Satan knew the plan of God. And he could upset it by tempting the Lord into the same failure as humanity back in the Garden of Eden. Here's the easy way out. Trust me rather than God. Here was the son of God who had taken on humanity and Satan has been attempting in various ways throughout scripture to derail the, 
the purposes of God. And then God takes on humanity and he thinks, now I have him. But unlike Adam and Eve, who fell for the deception in the garden, and there was a derailing in a sense of what God intended, though in God's purpose it was always there. Here was Jesus who stood in his perfection and said, no, get away from me, Satan. He is perfect humanity, resisting and victorious where humanity had failed and was defeated. Do you remember in Matthew 16, it's referred to in Luke as well, but Matthew 16 gives us more detail where the Lord said, who do people say I am? And he asked Peter uh, or the disciples and Peter responds and says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. They've come to this understanding. Here's the promised one. He's come. And after that, it says that Jesus then began to tell them repeatedly that he was going to go to Jerusalem. He was going to be rejected by the chief priests and the leaders of the people. He was going to suffer. He was going to be killed. And on the third day, he was going to rise again. Peter's reaction goes, never. That's not going to happen to you, Lord. The Lord's response in that moment was, get behind me, Satan. He could see the impact and the influence of the adversary on that man who was again trying to say, no, you don't need to go that way. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block for me. Here was the adversary trying to thwart God's eternal purpose and plan. He can't do it. But here in Luke 22, where Satan has been attempting, it would seem, in the early stages of the Lord's life and ministry to derail him, I think his tactics change. He's given up on that because he realizes that he cannot bend or twist or manipulate Jesus in any way whatsoever, like he can do with the rest of humanity. He can't do it. Luke 22, we, we get this insight where the Lord says, as we read it in verses 31 and 32, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you, you lot, the disciples, as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, uh, that when you return, you strengthen your brothers. The Lord knew that Satan was having influence on Peter again at that moment because Satan had requested of God access to the people who were the followers of Jesus. It seems as though the adversary in having given up in attacking Jesus directly himself and trying to deceive him and derail God's purposes Seeing that that was an impregnable situation, he then shifts his attention to make it as bad as he possibly can for his followers. It's reminiscent of Job chapter 1. We have an insight in Job's, uh, in the account of Job, of the sons of God as they're described. Created heavenly host, angelic beings, if we can say that appearing before God and Satan is amongst them to accuse Job. And Job is singled out and Satan asks for permission to go and to do things that would affect Job's life. And he is granted permission by God. Now, that's a whole other big story to get into, but we get that sense here that Satan has been trying to get personally at the person of Jesus and he can't. So instead he's going to make life as difficult as he can for those of his followers. 
It's amazing that in John chapter 6 and verse 64, it says, Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. We've thought about Peter and the influence of Satan on him. But interestingly, the Lord says, I have prayed for you, Peter. When you return, you strengthen your brothers. Here was a man who truly believed in who Jesus was and would be rocked with the circumstances that were coming. But the Lord had prayed for him. And Peter returned to be the force that he was in the proclamation of who Jesus was. I have to be careful with this statement, but you don't hear the Lord having the same interaction with Judas. As I'm going to say in a moment, I don't think Judas ever believed who Jesus was in the same way that Peter did. And that's why Satan would enter into him, not just influence, but enter into him. And Jesus knew this from the beginning, that there was one amongst his group who was going to betray him. So, Satan cannot derail God's purposes. Where we're arriving at in all of this, the Lord is in absolute control. This was God's means of bringing salvation to sinners. That the very sinless Son of God himself would go to the cross to be the sacrifice for sin and for sinners. And defeat death by coming through it and being raised to life. This was all in God's purpose and plan. Satan could not deflect it but he could try and make it as difficult as he could for the Lord's followers. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says in verse 34 that um, the Lord who died and, yes, was raised, is at the right hand of God interceding for us. Take that as something that we sometimes sit here and wonder, what is the purpose of God in this? And the evil of things that affect us outside and the sin within can cause us sometimes to wonder what the plan is. But take comfort that as the Lord prayed for Peter, for those who truly believe in him, the Lord is interceding on our behalf at the right hand of God now for those who truly trust in him. That's where his victory comes. Jesus, therefore... I'm saying, and this is the obedient human who secures salvation for those who trust in his perfection. John 14 and verse 30 says, The prince of this world is coming, the Lord says. He has no hold over me. He has nothing of me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has commanded me. Here he was saying, I'm the perfect man who honours the Father absolutely perfectly. The adversary has no hold over me. But all that he's doing is going to culminate in the revealing of my perfection that will stand on your behalf when you trust me as saviour. What about the deceiving of humanity? Jesus steps in where the adversary has deceived humanity. Jesus steps in and himself exposes the deception with the absolute truth of who he is. Go back to the Garden of Eden again in our minds and we see that the adversary comes and deceives Eve first. But Adam, I believe, was with her there and should have stepped in. We can't grapple with the what-ifs because they're not for us to grapple with. We deal with what has happened. 1 Timothy 2 verse 13, Paul says clearly there that Eve was deceived and became a sinner. 
Same thing with Adam. And Adam is the, seen as the, the head of the human race. And all those after him. Tainted with sin. So the adversary came in to that which God had made. And he deceived the woman. Into thinking that God was keeping something from her that she was entitled to. That was the root of the evil. Believing that God was keeping something from her. We can fall into that trap too. Christians are not immune to this deception. Just pass this on, 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3. As Paul is encouraging the church in Corinth to deal properly in the matter of forgiveness for one, with one another. And not to allow things to come to a point where people will not let go of stuff. And they will bear grudges and so on. He says, I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. That's written to believers. The adversary can come in and can deceive us. Whenever we allow things that are the consequence of our own sin in our relationships with one another and forgiveness is not granted to one another, that can be a cause for deception that can lead us astray from pure devotion to Christ. But let's look at Judas now in this matter of somebody being deceived. I'm not in any way excusing Judas. Excusing him at all, I'm not. Because he is culpable for his sin just as we are. But here was a man who was a chosen apostle to be a sent one by Jesus. And he's given authority as we see in Luke 9. He has been given authority by Jesus to go out and to heal people and to cast out demons. And he's been party to that. He's been part of that close group. But yet he does not believe. He has seen day after day in his accompanying with Jesus. The overwhelming evidence of the true identity of Jesus. That here is a man who has power. That is not matched by anybody else. Who says things. <coughs> That point to himself as being the centre point of faith. Not a philosophy, but in himself. But yet he does not believe. Seems as though Satan deceived Judas into thinking that tangible glory, immediate gratification, here and now, was to be preferred over a relationship with God. And the joy of that that would last for eternity. In John 12 and 6 we're told that he was keeper of the money bag. And he used to help himself to what was in it. He was a thief. And he kept it hidden. The Lord knew all about it. But he kept it hidden. So when he goes to the chief priest to make the deal with him. Matthew's account tells us that they, they said well we'll give you money for this. And they counted out 30 pieces of silver. That was the fulfilment of an Old Testament prophecy. Who's in control? The Lord. It seems as though you have a man who was part of that group of professing believers who did not believe in Jesus. That's a fearful thing for us to think of, that we could be the same. Active in Christian ministry, but yet not a believer, not saved. But then you have this aspect of his character where he was wanting things for himself, a secret sin. And Satan pushed against the open door of his heart. And he entered in. 
says that Satan entered into him. In John's account, it says that even as they sat around the table to begin the celebration of the Passover feast, it says there that Satan entered into Judas. As the Lord said to him, go and do what you have to. And off he goes. Judas was more interested, it would seem, in the things that he could have in this life than what the Lord had come to promise. Jesus came and he exposes this to us through this account and through the experiences of these people like Judas and Peter. He shows us the deception that he brings. We need to be careful as those who claim to be believers in the Lord Jesus not to fall for his schemes. Then you have the aspect of the adversary setting about to destroy life. Jesus steps in. He defeats death and ushers in the new life. Judas ultimately took his own life. We're told that in the Gospels. That he went out when he saw what had happened and he hanged himself. It's a gruesome account of what happened to him. His life ruined. And when the apostles are seeking a replacement of him. In their prayer to God. They say that Judas left his apostolic ministry to go to where he belongs. It's a frightening thing to realise that a man so close to the Lord. Could not for whatever reason put his trust in the Lord. But instead maintained his trust in the things of this world. Deceived by the adversary went to his own place. I just appeal for us. Here in the room and anybody listening. To be true in the reality of our faith. That we're trusting in Jesus Christ as the perfect man who has been the sacrifice. And not in the things of this life. That the Satan would deceive us into thinking are the means of our salvation. We're wealthy people. We can buy ourselves into things and out of things all the time. It's, it's too easy. But in the matter of sin, there is no price that we can pay. It has been paid by Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this about sinners. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. In which you used to live. Listen to this, when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's a reference to Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So sinners are people who deceived by him and his work. And as he plays at the sin in their lives, they are dead to God. But God yet in his grace steps in. Jesus said in John 10 verse 10, the thief, a reference Sideways reference to Satan. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Here's the one who comes to bring about a victory over the work of the adversary. Who has people following after him. And he steps in that he might bring life and expose the reality of Satan's work. Jesus, his life was a, a voluntary act of God to come and redeem humanity whom he'd made in his image. That they might be restored to glory and declare his glory through their transformation from being dead in sin to alive in Christ. In Hebrews 2 verses 14 and 15 it says, Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, that's Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by death, He might break the power of him who holds the power of death. That is the devil. 
and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. That's why God the Son became a man. He stepped in that through death, the very thing that is most feared, and is the end of the relationships and the experience of life as we know it here, that thing that troubles us deeply, God the Son stepped in and said, I'm going to reverse that for those that will trust in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I want us to finish with a look at Colossians chapter 2, if you would turn there with me. Colossians chapter 2 is it's got one of those very special descriptions of the victory of, of the Lord Jesus. So Satan is working. He's trying to trip Peter up. He's taken over the life of Judas. He's seeking to do the same thing with us today. Uh, but all in God's plan, in the Lord's experience, it's moving towards the cross where at the cross God will defeat death. Because Jesus, who was sinless and did not deserve death, gave himself willingly to death and then was raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit and by the power of God. But let's read this little section in in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. That's believers. You've been made alive with Christ who is raised from the dead. Let's read on. He, that's God, forgave us all our sins having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross was not a defeat. The cross was the place of victory. Notice that it's God here. He has taken away, for those who trust in the Saviour who is pinned to the cross, God takes away that which stands against us, the sin that condemns us, He takes it away, having nailed it to the cross. That's vivid language for a description of the perfect Son of God being taken and nailed to a cross and then being counted as if he is the one who has sinned. He has given himself, nailed it to the cross, and it's gone for those who believe. Why is it gone? Because Jesus, the perfect man, the Son of God, I can use the word absorbed. He absorbed the wrath of God in the place of sinners who will trust that he has done that for them. That's why Jesus is the Lord and he's in absolute control. And don't you just love the last part of verse 15 that he disarmed the powers and the authorities. And that's a reference to the nations of the world, the great power of Rome, the power of the Jews, but the nefarious activity of the adversary behind all of that the authorities is clearly a reference in Paul's writings the powers and authorities is to that which happens in the heavenly realms in a mysterious realm that we struggle to understand that he disarms all that is set against him and he makes a public spectacle of them and their abject weakness when he voluntarily gives himself 
to be the saviour as he would die on the cross. We see in the movies, don't we, that when people have a sword fight and you get that moment where one manages to knock the sword out of the hand and the camera pans to make sure you've caught the, the sword having slipped away, it's curtains for the one who's lost their weapon. The adversary, he has no weapon. But he still has power. And the caution for us, I believe, and where we've come, come at from Luke 22 today is, let's be wise, as Paul says. We, let's be aware of his schemes. And by the revelation of God and the Christ, by his spirit, we can see when we go to his word, the deception that will take us from the enjoyment of the life that Christ gave himself to bring us into. He's a disarmed, defeated enemy. Revelation 20, his days are numbered. He will be banished and he will be condemned for eternity. Go off and read it yourselves. Christ, he is the victor. And as a man, Jesus Christ, he defeated the attempts of God to, or the attempts of Satan to derail God, to deceive humanity, he was not deceived himself. And he went into death voluntarily that he might defeat it so that life could be granted to us who deserved that condemnation in the first place. Let's pray.